It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He is Jeff Fiegels. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we're here to break down all that is happening with the New York football Giants in multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program. 201-939-4513. That is option number one. You could also turn to Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat, or you could directly interact with one of us on our own Twitter accounts. As a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So what we'll delve into today is the fact that the Giants are having yet another OTA, OTA number three. And earlier today, Jeff, we had Brian Dable speak to the media. We also had Mike Kafka and Thomas McGahee. So some feedback from all three of those individuals in terms of some of their takeaways and what is transpiring throughout OTAs. And I want to start with what I thought was the big theme from their commentary thus far. And it's not necessarily anything startling, but it seems as if they're wanting to get a lot of feedback at this stage from the players to determine where they want to take this offense. And I'm not saying that's unusual, Jeff. Listen, you've seen it up close and personal from the various teams you're with, mm-hmm. from watching from afar in terms of how they go about strategy and implementation of the offense and the defense. But what Brian Dable and Mike Kafka have been preaching is they're going up to players right now and they're asking them, hey, what route do you really like running? And if they feel that they can maximize lining them up in this spot versus that spot, they're going to try to tinker with that and toy with that now so that by the time they get to training camp at the start of the regular season, they've at least received some feedback from the players in terms of where they're most comfortable in terms of their fit. Totally makes sense. Uh, totally, totally makes sense. Now, I will tell you that, you know, when you have this offense, it's designed, you have certain routes and things like that within the system. And I'm sure that what they're doing is they're, they're at, like you said, they're asking the players, hey, what kind of routes do you like? What is your favorite, um, you know, first, second down, whatever it is. Um, and then what they're going to do is if they can say, if we get, so let's just say it's Kadarius Tony, And he says, you know, I like to play the slot. I like to play this route. I like to do this. Okay, then they go back and they say, hey, listen, let's look and see what our design is of these plays. Okay, look, we got this play right here, this would be a perfect spot for Kadarius. By the way, he told us this is what he likes to run. Vice versa. We got Kadarius in this system. We got him in this play. He's told us that he doesn't like to play this. We're going to take him out of this because obviously we're not going to get the production out of him unless we really work him at this route. So I think it makes total sense. The other thing too, Lance, and I know this as a player, that a lot of times when you come into a new system, whether you've left the old team and now you're going to a new team where they have an existing coaching staff there, or you are on a team where the new ones come in, there's always an area where you get a feeling out process of both the players and the coaches for each other. And I think this is a prime example of what Coach Dable is doing for his for, for the coaches and the players that he's around right now. And I think that that's so important because – I feel like a lot of times these coaches try to put a square peg in a round hole. Sure. And as much as the players want to adapt to it, they have a problem with it. And they're always hesitant to say anything, especially if you're a young player. 
you don't feel like you have the right to say anything because now you're new, you're with this new program, you're in the pros now. And so I think this is a tremendous advantage for the team on both sides of the football. Now, we talked a little bit more about the offensive side, but I'm sure there's a lot of things, too, that are being asked from the defensive players, too, of, of kind of lining up and stuff like that. You can see how... Uh, Coach Martindale is bringing in some guys that are familiar with his system. And so I think that that kind of tells you a little bit about, you know, wanting guys to be around things that are familiar with them. But I think it's a great idea. And I, I, I you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I have nothing bad to say about that decision, what they're doing, 100%. It makes sense because, once again, this is also the time to experiment. And yeah. I think he was also emphasizing that, Brian Dable, with respect to Daniel Jones because there was a lot of questions coming Dable's way yeah, about Daniel yeah. Jones protecting the football, the turnovers, and he said that, you know, this is the time that they're trying to work with Daniel about walking that fine line between trying to be aggressive and throwing some passes in tight windows, but at the same time also obviously making sure that ball security is the top priority. And Dable mm -hmm. was giving the example of the fact that they're not going into games saying that they want to see him throw three to four interceptions, but they also don't want him to play afraid was the term that Dable used, or timid, meaning you want to be able to have your quarterback go into games and say, hey, if I could press the envelope a little, if I could take some chances down the field, we've got to be aggressive. We have to take them. But at the same time, you want to walk that fine line of balancing aggressiveness with mm -hmm. also ball security, but he was emphasizing the fact that this is the time that it's okay to mess up. So if a ball is deflected, tipped, it results in an interception, so be it. This way you have film at least to go back to, yeah. to where you messed up so that you don't repeat these things once the actual meaningful game starts. I think that, you know, being in the league as long as I did and how long I played, there, there, you, you have to understand from a player's perspective, when you're asked to do something that you really kind of don't want to do, uh, you're going to do it, all right? Whether you do it well or not, that's up to you. But from a player's perspective, when you get on the field and you basically have had a conversation, I'll kind of I'll kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about from the punting perspective, but from the player's perspective, from a quarterback or anybody else, if you go onto that field and you have confidence that what you're going to do, um, the coach is going to approve it, and if you make a mistake – you understand that, listen, we, we collectively kind of put this in to do it, and you can't, you can't be afraid to make mistakes. When you go on the field afraid to make mistakes, you, we call it you, you, you play, think wrong, you play wrong. Okay, if you're thinking about things that you're not, that you might make a mistake, you're you're gonna make the mistake. You, you're good enough. These guys are world class athletes that are on the field. That this is a high level. They're there for a reason to make plays. They can execute those things. So this is just all about communication and this is all about confidence and getting Daniel Jones to do things that he feels comfortable with while Brian Dable is going to put in a system that's going to basically help Daniel Jones, help Kadarius Toney, help the offensive linemen, help everybody do things the right way and feel confident. And connected to that, the other element in play that I thought was a big takeaway from the pressers earlier was there were a lot of questions about what this offense of course is going to look like. Is it the evolution of the Buffalo and the Kansas City offenses being melded together and so forth. Because the one thing that Mike Kafka brought up is that they have not had a lot of time working with one another, he and Brian Dable, because they've both been on different teams. They briefly crossed paths in New England when Kafka was on the roster and Brian Dable was the wide receivers coach in New England in 2004. So they had a little crossover. And 
Kafka had mentioned that they've exchanged text messages over the course of the offseason. But in fairness, Jeff, these two guys are really also getting to know each other. Oh, yeah. From yeah. a personal standpoint, because it's been quite some time since 2004 was here. So that relationship is being laid out, the framework for that, the foundation. And then on top of that, they're trying to build the offense. But the one thing that both of them, I thought, continued to lay out is the fact that they don't have the Buffalo players with them. They don't have the Kansas City players with them. No question. This is going to be the Giants' <laughs> offense. It can't be looked upon as if they're taking Buffalo's and Kansas City's concepts, they're throwing it out there, and they're saying, and this was the point that you talked about in terms of putting you know, a square peg into a round hole. Mm-hmm. Okay, You can't just assume that you have the next installment of Josh Allen or you have the next coming of Tyreek Hill. And it seems as if both of them at least are embracing the fact that they can't be stringent in terms of and rigid that this is going to be our offenses and the players are just going to accept it on face value. Yep, you hit the nail on the head. Um, You really can. And I think Mike Kafka, he understands. I I think more than – I think the players and the coaches – and the people in that building understand exactly what you said. I think what happens is, and I think as fans and people that follow the Giants and root for them, have to, they have to understand you're not getting the Buffalo Bills or the Kansas City Chiefs here. You're going to get some mixture of things that they, were, that they did being successful. I mean, Brian Dable has a head coaching job in the National Football League because of his success at, at Buffalo. Mike Kafka is coming over here as the offensive coordinator because of the success where he was in Kansas City. So the players, they're going to have to mold into what they want. And by the way, it's a never-ending game here, right? I mean, there's constant turnover. They're, they're, they're evaluating players. And that's what all this offseason, uh, the, the whole OTAs, the mini camps. And by the time you get to training camp, you're hoping that you have, have assembled what you feel will be a competitive team and that every position, every play that you run, you feel comfortable with guys being able to execute at those positions on both sides of the ball. That's where they're going to. And so going back to what you said, Lance, it makes a lot of sense that you can make mistakes right now because we can, we're in a coaching and teaching mode. And so don't be afraid to go out there and make mistakes in practice, okay? We're going to evaluate you on the good, the bad, and the ugly, okay? We're going to understand why you did this, and this is a teaching moment. We're not winning games right now, but we eventually are going to have to win games by doing the things the the right way, by watching tape and doing the things we're doing at the OTAs and minicamps and things like that. It is a constant process, and these coaches are tweaking things daily about putting players and this and that. And I know I'm a little long-winded on this, but those coaches, after practice, and the players are gone, they're up in their meeting room, their staff room. They're going over the the tape. They're going over, yep. you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the. And they're kind of making adjustments and saying, "Hey, you know what? I really like what this kid did out here while he was playing this position. Check, you know, this, this, and it. What do you think about maybe moving him to here? You know, and the next thing, the guy gets in the con- gets comes to the complex tomorrow and says, "Hey, by the way, you know, you're going to be playing this today. Oh, really?" Yeah, well, I've never played slot corner before. Yeah, but you know what? I think you can do it. And there you go. And when else can you move a guy from outside to inside and not, not have to worry about anything, losing games, right? You do it now. See if you can do it.
You have to capitalize. No, I think that's a great point. It's no different, Jeff, than when Brian Dable, right after the draft picks were selected, he said, guys, don't read into how the offensive line is going to line up on a daily basis. I'm going to move these guys around like crazy because now's the time where, right, you have the luxury to give them reps. The luxury, that's a great word. Yeah, Yeah. the luxury to do it. Absolutely. Whereas during the course of week five, when you're (laughs) studying up and implementing your game plan for your week five opponent – you don't have the time to experiment as much. So that's more of a reason why you do it now. And I want to also piggyback off of another point that you brought up with respect to Brian Dable and Mike Kafka getting these jobs because of what they did in their previous mm-hmm. stops. But it wasn't so much just the success of those offense. It was also what Dable did to make Josh Allen grow as a quarterback yeah. and how he developed him and that the Giants thinking is – he could come in and find that potential in Daniel Jones and the other personnel and do the same thing. Same thing with Mike Kafka, because remember, Kafka was not the play caller or the offensive coordinator in Kansas City. You had Eric Bieniemy and you had Andy Reid doing a lot of the heavy lifting yeah. and had those titles. But Kafka was still there. He was responsible for input. He was responsible for working with the quarterbacks and so forth. So you're hoping that what they've done from some of the lower levels, the developmental phase, is now going to carry over to the Giants and then put these guys in positions to have them reach the level of execution that they brought Kansas City and Buffalo to. That, I think, is the big appeal about what they did in their previous stops as opposed to saying, oh, well, you know, he put Stephon Diggs on the outside and in the slot and Diggs had 100 yards every single game. Yeah, but Stephon Diggs is not on the roster anymore, so he's going to have to find a way to do that with Wondell Robinson and Kadarius Toney, not Stephon Diggs anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, but and again, you know, at least Brian Dable was the offensive coordinator and sure, was, yeah. you know, involved in that where Mike Kafka was not. But he but those guys are all in meetings there. And by the way, they, they're constantly communicating with the other guys there, Andy Reid, and they're in the meetings. They're going through over the game plan, the terminology. They might as well be the offensive coordinator for all the stuff that they're learning, you know. But I think that the big takeaway here is what Brian Dable did with Josh Allen, you're hoping that he can have somewhat of a success because you really know what we're talking about with Daniel Jones here. It's a one and done, right? You're either you're one or you're going to get a contract or you're done. And so this is where the growth process comes from Brian Dable and working with Daniel Jones. We're going to see how that can maybe flourish if you if and you hope he can. Because I think this offense can be pretty productive as long as he stays away from some of the, the things that he's gotten in trouble with in the past. Well, it's a contract year. So, I mean, that alone certainly makes it extremely important from his standpoint. And, Jeff, not that you were misinterpreting my statement, but just to clarify, it wasn't a matter of I'm not trying to give Brian Dable credit for what was going on in Buffalo. I guess what I was tapping into is, you know, the big debate from being in the NFL all these years is, is the product and success of an offense the players or the coach taking the players and maximizing the most out of them so that when you take a coach, right, away from a roster that had a lot of star-studded talent, which certainly Kansas City and Buffalo did, were they benefiting more from having Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes, or is it because guys like Dable and Kafka have great minds that they could take lesser talent and get more out of them? And we're going to learn about that, obviously, (laughs) during the course of this season with the Giants. But that always is the big debate. You take a coach or a player away from an environment where they're 
insulated and they're surrounded by so much talent, what is it? It's the whole chicken coming before the egg <laughs> type of debate, mm-hmm. and that's what the similarities were. So that's where I'm getting at it in terms of where do you lie the credit with? Is it the coaches? Is it the players? Is it somewhere in the middle ground? That type of feel. Yeah, and let's throw Joe Shane in the equation here too. You know, 100%. The, the ability to to go out there and evaluate and sign players that he feels. And we talk about how these coaches and GMs need to be connected. These guys are connected. They understand where they're going, how they're going to get there. And I think with the input from both sides, the GM and the head coach, along with the offensive and defensive coordinators and even the special teams coordinator, you know, they they all got to be on the same page. And I'm sure they're not always, you know, they don't always agree. Um, but they, I feel like this this group is able to talk through some things, and I feel that that will be successful in the long run. The other thing that I want to throw out in terms of some interesting takeaways, injuries and health was brought up over the course of the press conference earlier today, and mainly the questions were in the direction of Brian Dable. He was asked about Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Toney. He mentioned that those guys are participating, though they're going to be wearing red jerseys because some guys are still rehabbing some injuries, and that's not necessarily anything of note or a surprise. But then he was asked about the offensive linemen, specifically about Nick Gates and how he's been progressing. Mm -hmm. I want to read the quote about Nick Gates. Brian Dable said, quote, yeah, same as the other guys. He had a tough injury, but he's done a good job with his rehab, probably still a little bit of ways away. Mm -hmm. I'd say him and Matt Paert, they're rehabbing every single day, getting better each day, so we'll see where they are at, end quote. And once again, not something that (laughs) we're caught off guard by because Nick Gates, remember, a few months ago when he spoke to the media, Jeff, he couldn't even place a timetable on yeah. when he thought he well, was going to get back. Yeah. Yeah. And Matt Parrott, remember, tore the ACL in week 16. So we're talking about he suffered an injury similar to Sterling Shepard so late in the game that it would be an unbelievable development if he was in a position where he was out on the field and ready to take on pads and contact and so forth. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I believe that, um, you know, both those players, I feel, are part of the equation here. Um, as far as whether it's a starting position or at depth at least, you know, because I feel like they're, they're, they're two guys that prove that they could play a little bit of football. I think Nick Gates more than Matt Parrott. I mean, Matt Parrott had his chances last year. Um, and, of course, you know, they didn't go very well. So I think that him getting back on the field and for having this team be able to evaluate him to understand if they want to keep him or not around, um, and if they do, then he'll obviously be a piece of that puzzle for something – when it comes with the depth position. I, I don't, you know, he's not going to beat out Evan Neal. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So <laughs> that's just not going to, you know, so I think that ship has sailed for him, but I feel like he's got a chance to, to, to maybe come back and see what he can do and be part of the puzzle when it comes to depth at that position. Because you need a swing tackle and you gotta need have some someone. insurance, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know they've got a lot of them. I mean, they, they, you're going to see a lot of lot of names and, and players at, at that offensive line position this summer. And, you know, they can only keep so many of them, but at least they're going to get a good look at all of them. That's for sure. And remember, some of these guys, this is just my own speculation. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there's any definitive knowledge of this, but they could very well start on PUP, some of these guys, at the beginning of training camp. And then they'll determine whether or not they're ready at some point in training camp to get on the field. If not... They move over to perhaps a regular season pup. That could be an option, which means you're buying them more time, and then you have the option to activate them midway through the season. 
So that could very well be in play because that's a way to not lose a guy for an entire season. Because remember, Jeff, if they start the year off on IR before the regular season even begins, you can't bring them back. Mm -hmm. But if they're on PUP, you have a little bit more flexibility in that department. So that could be the route that a few of these guys take, where they're yeah. physically unable to perform early on, they advance to the regular season list, and then you determine what happens week seven, week eight. Because in an ideal world, you wish your roster stayed fully healthy, right, from start to finish. But yep. the NFL is not an ideal world, Jeff, as you can attest to. So you have to prepare that sometimes if you get a guy back off of PUP, like Aaron Robinson, for example, midway through the season. Sometimes it's nice to get a guy with fresh legs in the event somebody else playing in front of him is unavailable for a few weeks. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the thing about it too, and you have these guys that are waived um, injured, you know, those kinds of things. There are transactions like that that happen. Um, because, you know, a lot of times the the IR designation, right, to get, correct me if I'm wrong, you, if you get on IR before the season starts, it's week eight, right? Is that what it is? That you can well, come no, back? if you are on IR before – well, clarify, Jeff, what do you mean by before the season starts? Because it's more based on the 53-man roster. That's what if I mean. You, okay, yeah. so if you go yeah. on IR yeah. yep. before the 53-man roster is finalized, you're done. You're you're done. done. You done cannot for the season. return. Yeah. If you yeah. make the 53-man roster, mm -hmm. are then placed on IR, gotcha. you are then eligible to return. And to answer your question, you it's don't four. have to wait till week eight. Remember, they it's adjusted four. the yeah. rules where after three to four weeks – that's You're right. all of a sudden eligible to yeah. return. And, yeah. and, and like some of these guys, like they're up against the timeline where a lot of times they're like, okay, you know what? Listen, this is a tough decision for us because we know that you can probably be back in three weeks, but uh, we're not sure we want you on the roster at 53 man. So if we cut you, you know, we're doing you a favor and basically getting because you can you can go somewhere else, but we're, we're going to have to waive you injured. You know what I'm saying? So uh, there's usually a settlement in there for those couple, two or three weeks during the season that they have to sure. pay them for something. So a lot of maneuvering that goes into it. But I've always felt like <laughs> take that out, take that out of the equation and just go out there and ball out and play. And you won't have to worry about that, you know. <laughs> so um, but I think that, you know, with the case of those two guys, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Obviously, you know that there isn't a whole lot of depth at center. We know that there's a lot of guys that can play center, you know, swing guys back and forth, guard, center, those kind of things. But, you know, and Nick Gates is a guy that can do that too. He definitely can play center. We know that. He started at all the other positions so and ended up playing very well at the center position when he got hurt. So we'll see what happens there. Well, you bring up a great point in terms of the versatility. It's not just him as insurance at center, but he mm -hmm. can also be moved over to guard, and you need those versatile guys, especially if they're going to serve as backups. But, hey, they brought in John Feliciano for a reason. Mm -hmm. He has starting experience at also guard and center, and if Nick Gates is not ready to go, as Brian Dable indicated, they at least feel they have some options already in-house. So those are some of the major takeaways from Brian Dable, Mike Kafka's press conferences earlier today. The Giants also made a transaction. We'll get into that in a little bit as we move along here on Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. In the meantime, let's open up the lines at 201-939-4513, and we check in with Doug in Rochester as he joins us. What's happening, Doug? Hi, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Hello? Doug going once. There's Doug. Doug going twice. Hey. Yes, Doug. Hey, how are you doing? All right, Doug, Doug you were close, Doug. man. It was near a check swing. The umpire <laughs> was about to throw you out. I'm just warning you. <laughs> No, um, this is Jeff and Paul. I mean, Jeff and um, Lance. Lance, right? Yeah, correct. You got yes. us. Now, now that we've gotten the particulars out of the way, yes. 
Yeah, um, I just wanted to talk about um, the wide receiver the, um, core. Um, who's currently on the roster that's playing the, the wide out position? And, you know, I'm not talking about a flanker. I'm talking about a deep ball threat wide out is playing wide out receiver besides Slayton. Uh, well, you got obviously, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of guys that can play that position that are in camp right now. So, I mean, I, we don't even have a roster right now. <laughs> well, I mean, they're moving guys yeah. around. They're mixing I mean, and matching. But just to clarify, Doug, are you talking about, like, who's a deep threat on the roster? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, because, you know, like, Buffalo and Kansas City threw the ball deep. Because uh, I'm not talking like Tony or Robinson. I'm talking about, like, that's a little bit of a misconception, too, because what also those offenses did was they got guys out in open space, and then a lot of that was yak. Yeah, You know, Tyreek yeah. Hill would grab a 10-yard catch, and he would take it to the house 40 more yards, and all of a sudden it was a 50-yard reception. Yeah. I'm not saying that they didn't have deep threats, but don't get so caught up in having to throw the ball 50 yards down the field and the guy walks into the end zone. A lot of this offense is going to be built on some shorter passes and guys then doing a lot of the heavy lifting after. But in terms of deep well, threat, Jeff mentioned Darius Slayton. Hold on, I'll let you continue, Doug. Jeff mentioned Darius Slayton. Kenny Galladay certainly could stretch the field. And then Robert Foster is a guy I've brought up. If you look in his career, Foster averaged about 20 yards per reception in some of his previous stints. He is a very deep threat type of guy. That's been his style. Okay, so you think he'll make the team? or well, well, I think he has a legitimate shot to compete. I don't think he's a lock. He's also a special teams guy, mm -hmm. so that's appealing. But, no, I mean, they clearly, if they're going to keep five wide receivers, I mean, look at the names right there. It's not going to be easy if they keep six. I think he certainly increases his chances of making the roster under those circumstances. Yep. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, because you know, they, they had, they, they had uh, both Kansas City and Buffalo did have, um, receivers that fit that description. I know Tyree Kill got a lot of lack guarders, and that's not what I'm talking about, Robinson and Tony will get there. I'm just talking about a follow up burner down the sideline. Yeah, like one on one coverage. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, I mean, Tyree Kill once again had the versatility where they could run him deep down the field, but you're not just looking to once again run past everybody. You're looking to get guys out into open space and to capitalize with respect to the confines of your offense. If you remember, and Jeff, we were talking about this, and appreciate the phone call, Doug. Thanks so much for weighing in here. Thanks, Doug. Jeff, when the Giants played the Chiefs earlier this season, mm -hmm. and remember it was the whole conversation about what's wrong with Kansas City? Remember yeah. we went through that whole yeah. thing? Yeah. Why are they not having the explosive plays? Everybody's they have to figured evolve, them out. Right? Yeah. Correct. Everybody was going crazy. Oh, the Chiefs are a shell of themselves. They forgot how to play football. And then little did we know, all of a sudden they win eight straight games as the season went along. But what happened was they became more of an offense where we're not going to worry about the deep bomb because they're playing us with two safeties deep. We're going to take what the defense gives us. So I think the Chiefs offense evolved and it no longer became we have to go for the home run. So I would look at that as perhaps where the Giants are at least starting out, and then it depends on how teams start defending the Giants all throughout the course of the season. Yeah, I mean that's it, and that's a that's a week to by week kind of thing that you got going on with matchups and how you're gonna you know it's it changes constantly. And those coaches, 
My gosh, I mean, they they live and die by this stuff. And I think that, you know, as week to week goes, they figure things out. Because you know what? The other team is figuring your stuff out too, you know? So they, you got to kind of be able to come up with some new things. And if this isn't working and teams are – they're scheming against this. We got to be kind of a chameleon, right? We got to change a little bit. Yep. And that's what happened to the Chiefs. They said, "Okay, well, listen, we have the ability to change because number one, we've got one of the best quarterbacks, if not the best quarterback, in the National Football League, and then we've got these all these skill positions around us. So let's let's just tell you what: rather than line up Hill here, line him up over here, put him in the backfield, do this kind of this, and so that is the creativity that Mike Kafka may be able to bring to this offense with Brian Dable's help." to, on a week-to-week basis, change some things. So that's what's going to happen. And, you know, nobody stays the same in this league. You either get better or you get worse, or guys figure you out, and then you got to change. You really do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, as long as you have the players to adapt. That's the big thing. You know, so you have to understand that you just can't go out there and change things unless you got guys that can do it, both mentally and physically. I, I, we can sit in the meeting room all day long and look at tape and draw up plays, but if you don't have the personnel to do it, it's worth nothing. It's absolutely worth nothing. So, And some teams have the luxury of being able to have that. Some teams don't. Okay, let's try to do this. Well, I don't know. I mean, can, how, how are we going to put this guy there? I mean, he's never played there before, but we got to do it. Well, I don't know how we're going to – I mean, so what are we going to do? we got to go find somebody, you know, that kind of thing. It's not that easy. It really isn't. Well, then it's just a bunch of shiny parts, right, yeah. on paper, and there's not a lot of return with respect to what you have in all of those pieces. So I think that's also, you know, the fine line that sometimes individuals walk. I want to bring up the numbers here because, you know, it goes back to the last caller, this fascination with you need – somebody that's going to burn everybody down the field. I'm bringing up Kansas City's numbers with respect to, Jeff, yardage per reception okay. by all of their receivers. Because I think that's a good indication, unless you think there's another number. And feel free to disagree, Jeff. But well, I look at yards per reception as maybe an indication of how you utilize the player throughout the course of the season. Um, yeah, I could go with that. I, I guess the other one, I, I don't know if I can measure the yards after catch. I, I think to me is kind of, you know, I, I feel like, uh, for instance, okay, let's, let's just say uh, Galladay, okay? His yards after catch are not going to be anywhere near Kadarius Toney. Yep. Uh, you know, so, but they might have the same receptions. Let's just say they both had 50 receptions and their yards after catch, they're not even going to be, they're not going to be anywhere similar. But to me, Kenny Galladay would have a better yards like the the statistics that you're going for because he's that type of a receiver. So I don't know. I guess if you had to do one common denominator, we could go with that, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, for example, the only reason I'm bringing this up is Tyreek Hill. You would agree, Jeff. Tyreek Hill gets a lot of yardage after the catch, right? By okay. design, 100%. Now, so last season, if you look at what his yardage per reception was, okay. I actually i am surprised. I would have thought it would have been higher. If you would have asked me without looking this up, his okay. yardage per reception last season was 11.2. Doesn't uh, sure. that seem low to you? Yeah, yeah, but right? here's the thing. I, I'm wondering, like, you know, he gets so many of those receptions behind the line of scrimmage that maybe he gets a one-yard gain. That's fair. And you know? that throws off the numbers a little bit. Yeah, because sure. that's that's yeah. what I but, – but, but, again, I thought that number would be way higher. That's yeah, so for sure. I. Yeah. yeah. Compared so for, to who, who? Give me someone else on Kansas well, I would, City. I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to go to some of the other guys. Okay. The guy that actually led the team last year for Kansas City in yardage per reception was Byron Pringle at mm-hmm. 
Well, it's he still was not the a guy. Number. Yeah, and that's not even a number that jumps off no. the page. That was higher than Travis Kelsey. That was higher than McCole Hardman. And that was higher than Tyreek Hill. And those three guys, specifically Hardman and Hill, are the guys with a lot of speed out in open space. And how many yards did uh, did he throw for this year? Last year, <laughs> Mahomes in total. Yeah, you're talking about yeah. Patrick Mahomes last season threw for just over 4,800 yards, almost 5,000. Like having two receiver, having your number one receiver with less than 14 yards of reception. Yeah. Now, from a total standpoint, Kelsey and Hill each had over 1,100 receiving yards. So when you add up the total over the course of the season, both of those guys were obviously extremely productive. But I'm looking at it from what the caller was pointing out, which was, you know, you're so obsessed with the burners, Mm -hmm. but you look at it, once again, Tyreek Hill was talking about just over 11 yards per reception. Now, Buffalo's numbers were a little bit higher. Okay. okay? Gabriel Davis, he was at 15.7 per reception. And then Emmanuel Sanders was right behind him at 14.9. And then... You had another player at 14 yards per reception, much smaller sample size. But the two guys with Davis yeah. and Sanders, I think, are fair. So they got a little bit more explosiveness. But Stephon Diggs, okay, right? He's the guy that had a lot of big plays. He's known for that. Stephon Diggs, 11.9 yards per reception. Isaiah McKenzie, another guy that's a fast guy that could get out of open space. Maybe not as many receptions, obviously, in targets as Stephon Diggs, 8.9 yards per reception. So that's why I feel like... It's a little bit thrown off this narrative that those two teams in particular, all they were obsessed with was throwing 65, 70 yards down the field. <laughs> now, okay, so I, I also like, let me go with like a team like Dallas, okay? Okay. With some, some burners on the outside sure. there. Let me know? bring up those numbers as a music yeah. comparison as you talk. I, I look yeah. at those and I feel like, you know, that position, those are true burners, okay? Now, now Amari Cooper, I don't think he's a guy that's going to take the top off a of defense, um, but CeeDee Lamb will, okay? Um, I'm just curious to see what those guys' average was compared to some of the other teams, which, by the way, those two offenses that we're talking about, both Buffalo and Kansas City, um, you look at Dallas's offense last year, pretty productive. So I'm curious what those numbers are. Well, I think it's a good example. And Cooper, who you brought up, see, Cooper, I agree with you. He's not a fast guy, but he's very fluid. He's such a mm-hmm. productive route runner that he knows how to get open and create space yeah, because smart. of the fundamentals. But you're right. He's not necessarily going to burn you right down the field. So C.D. Lamb was their top guy, 13.9 yards That's per reception. That's crazy. That is nuts. That is absolutely – I would think it would have been, you know. So, I mean, I don't know how – I don't have the ability to bring up the, the top – receivers and and that statistic in the in the league but what is the top like on a minimum of how many receptions we're going here sure no i'll try to find those numbers that's fair as a means of comparison yeah i mean i I would imagine that would you go minimum 50 is that too much 50 yards per reception no no 50 receptions to get get an average you know what i mean like you mean yeah i i would think in fairness you want 45 to 50 catches to get a good barometer on a receiver because listen if you do the math right if you play now 17 games, okay, Jeff, and you say you want a receiver to have a fair balance to what? Get three to four catches a game, okay. right? Out of 17, is that fair? Yeah. So yeah. if you had 17 games, if you caught four a game, actually that would take you to 68. So 50, we're being kind. 50 is a little bit lower than that average number. Yeah. But I would say if you get 50 catches over the course of the season, that to me gives me a good read of what you may have been able to do in terms of the explosiveness or the targets over the course of the year. Yeah, okay. So, um, 
Okay, so you know what? And it's kind of hard with the Giants last year to try to figure out, you know, who their top receiver because everybody was hurt. <laughs> so I Correct. don't think, yeah. you know. Well, and also given uh, the points per game that they had and oh the lack goodness. of touchdowns, I don't think we're really going to accomplish much of anything. Yeah, well, I think one thing we will accomplish is knowing that it's going to be better. <laughs> at least you would we hope. hope so. Yes. Yeah, we definitely hope so. But I think that where you're going at with this and from what the caller was asking us as far as a deep threat I mean, you really go down the line and look at some of these powerful offenses and you're not going to come up with a guy that's going to have like a 19 to 21 yard average um, unless he's, you know, he's only got 25, 30 catches and they're all big ones. Correct. And the numbers are thrown off. Well, speaking of that, Jeff, I just brought up the leaders for last season to give an idea because I think you bring up an interesting point. Okay, so the top average yardage per reception last season. Can I guess? Sure. Yeah. Take. Is a guess. this on a minimum, or is this, or is it? Just, no. This it's... is just. This is literally. I brought up. I'm on Pro Football Reference, and you can okay. organize them by columns. And yeah. I have yardage per reception, but they don't necessarily eliminate people. But I will tell you, the lowest reception total for some of the guys near the top, just to give you an idea. Some guys have 34 catches, 36 catches, 35 okay. That's catches. That's but, but the guy at the top who led the NFL, had 77 receptions. So we're talking about a relatively big sample size for All this right, guy. All right, so 77 receptions, the top, go, the top guy. I'm going to say, top was, guy. It, was, yes. it, was it six, 17? No, it was higher. It was way higher. Oh, no, wow. not way higher, but okay. it was higher. 17's right. a good guess, but yeah. it, it was above 17. All right. was the go top ahead. number. See, I thought you were going to guess the player. You want to guess the number, I guess. Well, I was, what was it Adams? No, it was not Devontae Adams. Hmm. Um, and he's not even in the top 10, by the way, just to give you an idea. Wow. Yeah. It's a notable player, though. It's yeah, not like some obscure wide receiver that I'm throwing out here. AFC, NFC. 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 I don't know. I'm probably horrible <laughs> at this game. Uh, go ahead, Lance. It's it is Debo wait, Samuel of the San Francisco 49ers. Oh, well, hell, my goodness. I yeah, mean, look at He led so, the NFL yeah, last year. That's, that's incredible. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but no. I mean— but, and by the way, 18.2 was his statistic. Hmm. And right behind him was Jamar Chase, who also was not ah, a surprise. That's, that's another one. Yeah. He had 18. And then rounding well, out the top three, Donovan Peoples-Jones from Cleveland, who did have 34 catches only. Okay. But he had 17.6 yards per reception. So you had three guys in the NFL that were over 17 yards per catch last season. All I remember is watching highlights of Jamar Chase <laughs> down the field. <laughs> yes. I mean, so I thought his number would be way higher and be the number one guy now that I'm thinking about it. But um, but still, at 17, okay, so there you go. I mean, um, so realistically speaking, we can kind of get a, an understanding of where – well, I look at the receivers from Balt- – from, uh, not Baltimore, from the Buffalo Bills and from – the Kansas City Chiefs, because those are two, those are kind of two of the mixtures, right, that we're going to get with the two coaches, um, and not one of them. The, the highest was 13, right? Wasn't it, wasn't it 13? Well, highest was 13 with respect to what? I'm sorry. Uh, yards per catch. Average. For the For both teams. The, well, the high- Buffalo, remember, Buffalo had one guy that was oh, just well, over 15. Yeah. yeah, okay. So there you go. But for I mean, Kansas City, it was 13, though, 13, as you yeah. mentioned, Jeff. Yeah, and I mean, that was accurate. I mean, I, I, I can't think of a more prolific offense than the Kansas City Chiefs on a day-in and day-out basis, right? So I, I look at that number right there. It tells me a little bit about how Mike Kafka is going to try to use some of these short little fast guys that they have. 
and I and listen, I, I kind of, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I, I kind of see the way that this league is going. Um, are you a hockey fan at all? Sure, Lance? I follow hockey. Yeah, so absolutely. If, if you look at some of these teams, I'm not a huge hockey fan. I like the playoffs, but I don't run, I don't follow it all the time. But I can tell when you're watching some of these teams that how the evolution of hockey. Do you know how fast some of these guys are? Oh yeah. And I feel like that's kind of where the the trend is. And you look at the combine this year. The fastest times you have ever seen across the board from these players. I just feel like the offenses of the National Football League these days are going to they're going to such a faster pace and just getting the ball in these guys' hands because they're gonna make guys miss and they're gonna get big plays. And by the way, it's an easy completion for the for the quarterback. Bingo. Rather than trying to go down the field like everybody wants. And I understand it. it's a big play, it's a fun play, you like to see it. But you know, today you don't have to do that by and try to. You can get big plays otherwise. Now, not to say that they're never going to do this, Lance. If they're lined up and the quarterback gets over there and there's a mismatch, he's going to throw it down the field. And by the way, the rules are going to cater to the play to the offensive side, and they're going to make big plays like that. But I just feel this offense and the way that that they're going to run this offense, I think it's going to be get the ball in some get the ball in playmakers' hands, get it in Kadarius Tony, Saquon Barkley, okay, all these little guys. It just get the balls in the no. Well, Saquon's not a little guy, but you know what I'm saying. Just athletes, L- let them make some plays and then. Score some points for darn it. I mean, gee whiz. Can we get some points on the board, Lance, please? <laughs> yeah, that's a big must, especially oh my after goodness. you've had two seasons under 20 points per game. <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to dispute that. Lance Meadow, Jeff Fiegel's with you here on Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll reopen up the phone lines. Just a few reminders before we get to the phones. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit for this one, Giants.com slash suites for more information. All right, let's head back to the phone lines as we move along here on BBKL. Reggie is in Phoenix. Joining oh, us hey, Reggie. What's happening, Reggie? Hey, Lance. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Good, good. Doing very well. What do you got for us? Um, my question is about Daniel Jones. I remember last season from the games that I've watched, um, he had trouble with progressions. I know we have, you know, not so good of an offensive line, but as far as his progressions would go, he would go through his reads. And as far as moving defenders off ball, I know he had a lot of trouble with that. Um, I just wanted to get you guys' opinion on that situation and what you guys think, um, how he's going to build and um, try to not have sure. that happen this season. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, we, we talked about this all of last season and a little bit of the season before about the wide receivers for the New York Giants, and that is them being able to get separation. And I think that when you can't get the type of separation that you need and then your quarterback has to go through those progressions, I think a lot of it is, is kind of goes together hand in hand. So I don't want to blame Daniel Jones when he was playing about his progressions. I feel like it's hard as a quarterback knowing that if you can't get your receivers aren't getting separation in your first read, you obviously have to go to the second and the third. But that's a quick that's I mean, it's fast. It's very fast. I think that. 
this is kind of something, in my opinion, that the new coaching staff went back and looked at Daniel Jones. And if this was one of the things that they needed to address, they're, they're doing it right now. They're working on his progressions. I just don't see Daniel Jones um, going to have to – they're, they're not going to require him to sit in that pocket for as long as he can. I think he's going to get the ball out of his hands quickly. He's going to make a first and a second read, and that's it. And I think these there are going to stay. And usually their first and second reads are to the same side of the field. You know that. The third read is usually yeah. something that's outside or, or you have to, you know, that's a, that's a turn your body and throw it to the other side of the field. That's a hard one. But I think they're going to be working on that. And you bring up a really good point. Well, I think it goes back Thank to also you. what Jeff was talking about earlier. If we're talking about the whole structure of this offense being to get guys out into open space, then I think the logic going into this season is not to say that Daniel Jones shouldn't have some chances down the field, but let the playmakers do the heavy lifting. Take a little bit off the quarterback to not put him in some of those positions where, A, he's holding on to the ball a little too long, and sometimes that has led to turnovers because he's just trying to make something out of nothing and then throwing it away at the last second, but prior to that he gets hit, and also not putting your offensive line in a spot where they have to protect forever. If you could just dump it off for five yards and then Tony and Robinson can gain 10 yards after that, that's a first down. Who mm-hmm. cares? What difference does it make? In the NFL, Jeff, you don't get extra points in the standings if you throw <laughs> the ball 17 times down the field 50 yards or it's piecemeal. I know people say, well, you know, that's the cheap way of playing football. The bottom line is it's a result-oriented business. Who cares how you go about it? Yeah, move the chains. Doesn't yeah, matter. Exactly. The defense gets you. Thanks, yeah. Jeff. Thank you guys for answering. You're welcome. Question. Yeah, yeah, you got it, Reggie. And no, and, and, and Reggie, you're you're absolutely correct. You got to give. You got to take what the defense gives you, and that's part of the um, the maturity of the quarterback position. And that's why it's so hard to play that position in the National Football League because the decision making that goes into playing quarterback is so hard. I mean. You got people don't have any idea how difficult that position is to play, and when you watch guys that do it really, really well, they make it look pretty darn easy. Tom Brady, guys like that, you know, what I mean, they really make it look simple when it's when it's not. And I think that there's no substitute for experience. These guys, these young guys, I mean, you just look how they get better. A prime example, Josh Allen. Just look at his, look at how he's gotten better and better and better as he's gone through and and become a little bit of an older player. Not older. I don't mean he's still young, but. You know, he's just kind of made that progression and gone from year two to year three. It was a big step for him. Yeah, even year one to year two, Jack. Yeah, exactly. Was also notable as well. Yeah. And part of that was the talent around him improving. A hundred percent. And I think that that's what, if anything, Giants fans should be excited about Joe Shane and Brian Dable, how they were up there in, in Buffalo and saw how this team was built over time, you know, and saw how they could put it together um, in year one and year two, and like I said, not just the quarterback position, but they went out and did things in free agency. They drafted well, and some of them they coached well. Some of the players that were still there, the, the holdovers, if you will, they they coached them up and were able to play. So that's exciting, and I think that that's the biggest thing in my mind when I'm looking at this Giants football team. I'm looking at this season as being one of those years where we see from start to finish, we see progression. I don't know how many teams they're gonna, how many games they're gonna win. They might win them all. They might lose them all. I don't know. But what I want to see is consistent, uh, consistently getting better on a week-to-week basis. Where at the end of the season this year, we can honestly say, going into the off season, no matter what it brings us, uh, uh, you know, a, a uh, NFC championship. I don't know. Whatever it is, we want to see that we're gonna have a better team next year and be able to compete on a daily day basis. Week to week, year to year. That's where we got to go.
I got Let's confidence head. in those guys. Yeah. I really do. Let's head back to the phone lines. Chris is in Virginia, and he joins us here on Giants.com. What's happening, Chris? Hey, Chris. Hey, what's going on? Jeff and Lance. How you guys doing, man? Wonderful. Very well. How about yeah. yourself? I am pretty good, man. Hey, so, you know, I had a chance to really think about this as you guys were talking. Um, it's an overall philosophy question of iron sharpening iron. And I'm not sure is if our team right now is at that point. When I think of iron sharpening iron, I'm thinking you got pieces in place like vets, um, guys you've drafted over time that stayed with the team. And when you bring in new folks, new draft picks, you're just sharpening each other up. The offense is sharpening the defense. The competition is really high, so you're keeping everybody or you're elevating players to a higher level. And I'm wondering if if we're having that philosophy as we're building this team and we got Tibbs, we got Neil, um, you still got, you know, some guys in place. Or are we more like, you know, like a chef's – like chefs, you know, when they got to sharpen their knives, they kind of get stoned, and those stone pieces are like – the weight of your team and you bring in these these knives and you're trying to sharpen them up whether it's new guys who need to be sharpened or maybe old vets like we brought in from buffalo and so forth and sharpen them up and try and create this team um i kind of feel like the philosophy right now with our team and where we're going and the pieces we have in place is more like we want to get to that stone sharpening stone but we're really like uh, we got some like stone pieces, but we got some knives that we brought in new and old, and we're just trying to sharpen them up so we can go out there and put our best foot forward. And um, you know, I just wanted to put that that thought out there and kind of get your guys' take on how you see you know the pieces we brought in, um, the new pieces mixed with the old, and, and kind of the philosophy of Dave's and um, Kafka and so forth. So I, I kind of want to throw that out to you guys if that makes sense. Well, with respect to your point, I think the guys they brought in, and a number of them, as you mentioned, have some connections to Buffalo, and some guys also are connected to Wink Martindale. Let's not forget about that, too. Yeah, yeah. was more of the familiarity benefit. Let's bring in some seasoned veterans who understand the scheme, who could be an extension of the coaching staff and help implement and set the foundation. I don't know necessarily if it was the philosophy of ironing, sharpening, ironing, because, Jeff, when I think of iron sharpening iron, when that phrase is utilized, and it's a bit of a cliched line, but that to me is during practice, okay? If you have a really good defensive line, you feel as if you're testing your offensive line. You're preparing those guys for what they're going to see right on a weekly basis. If you have a really good offensive line, then you're preparing your defensive line for when they have to go up against some of the elite groups. And I think if you look across the NFL, I don't think this is a coincidence, Teams with very good defensive lines are preparing their offensive lines, and you've seen their offensive lines elevate, vice versa. For example, and I know this may be troubling to Giants fans, but I'm going to go in the division, okay? Let's look <laughs> really? at Philadelphia, yeah, okay? The Eagles, yep. right? Philadelphia, Jeff, has had a very strong defensive line over the last few years, and they've only added to that with Hassan Reddick and Jordan Davis, who they drafted this year. But they've got Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham and Derek Barnett and Javon Hargrave. I'm not going to list you the entire Eagles roster. You get the point. <laughs> but the Eagles' offensive line, they don't have a lot of big-name commodities. They have Jason Kelsey and Lane Johnson, but they've brought in a lot of young guys. Jordan Mailata was they somebody that him. was a rugby yeah. player, right? Yeah. And Landon Dickerson was just drafted. Mm -hmm. But why are these guys playing well? Well, Jeff, who are they going up against on a daily solid, basis? Solid competition. So yeah. that's my point. So I know it was a long-winded answer, 
that I gave you there, Chris, and I appreciate the phone call, but Jeff, that to me is the iron sharpening iron, not so much just randomly bringing in veterans here or there. Yeah, well, you know what? You got to have the first iron to sharp the second iron, right? That's true, yes. <laughs> so uh, either there or that or you got two dull knives going against two dull knives. I don't know. But I, I feel like, you know, and listen, the, the, the coaches love competition, and that's really, and so do the players. I will tell you that a lot of the players, they like competition. And, you know, it's not going to help that player. If you're a defensive end going up against a weak left tackle every day in practice, that's not going to help you. That's not going to help you win on Sunday. You know, you're, you're, you're obviously your ability will help you to a point, but you want to get better and better and better each practice and each week and each month and each year. And if you got someone across from you that you're whooping every single day, that gives you a little bit of false hope because you don't, you're not going to be going up against a guy like that on Sundays. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Or maybe yeah, you no will. lay up lines on yeah, Sundays. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but there they're, they're might be here and there, but out of 17, 17 weeks, you're not going to get them on a nope. you know consistent basis. So um, that I agree with your analysis. I think that you know the iron sharpening iron is exactly what that is. Um, but I, you know, a good comparison with the with the Eagles. I mean, their their defensive line has always been pretty darn good, and their offensive line years ago was really good, and then they kind of yeah. went through a little bit of a, st- a stunt, and then last year. You know, that offensive line became one of the better ones in the league. It really did. Um, and I think, you know, I just, you know, I, that, that Eagles defense is <laughs> just continues to get better and better by the week, you know, because that one guy just left the Giants and went in the division. I mean, I, I wanted the best for, for James Bradbury, but Paul and I were talking about this the other day off the, before we got on the show. We're like, you know, we're, we were thinking Arizona. We were thinking, you know, somewhere else. But, man. <laughs> Uh, and Paul even said it to me. He goes, "I just don't want him to be in the division. That's what I'm a sca- I'm a sca- uh, scared. That's what I'm scared about." Well, sure enough, look what happened. Yep. Well, he's not going to be too far from home. I'll tell and you. And by that. the way, they got Darius Slay on the other side. That's yep. a pretty good, pretty good tandem right there. And by the way, ironing, sharpening iron also holds true for wide receiver cornerback matchups in practice. Oh my goodness! As well. Let's in not overlook fact, that. In fact. I would, I would, I would say to you that you know they get more of those reps. I think those guys are constantly going against each other, seven on seven. Okay, the defensive line and offensive line, they don't get a lot of like you know they get some individual work together, but you know during practices nowadays, there's really not a lot of live reps going on. You get them in, you yep. get them in the one-on-one stuff, but you know the receivers and the defensive backs. That's a constant, constant two-hour practice for those guys. They're covering when they're warming up, then they're doing drills, and then they go on to seven-on-seven. Then they have, you know, nine-on-seven. I mean, they're constantly working more so than the offensive lineman versus the defensive lineman. So I agree with you there. Well, and the reason I brought that up, and I do think you made a good point in terms of the differential, because also they don't want to wear those guys down in the trenches so much during the course of the season. That's why also the physicality sort of dissipates as the year progresses. But Mm -hmm. with respect to the Giants situation for the wide receiver cornerback matchups, listen, it's going to be great for these young corners to go up against some of these experienced wide receivers like a Kenny Galladay, a Sterling Shepard. That bodes well. I just wonder... How much in the early stages, Jeff, are the veteran wide receivers getting out of going up against guys that barely have many reps in an NFL regular season game? I just don't know if you're returning the favor as much on the reverse. Maybe we'll have a different conversation in the latter part of the season and maybe into next season. But this season, it's not as balanced in that department when you compare the wide receivers to the cornerbacks at this stage. I agree. 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you just read the read the newspaper or the, you know, online that there's constant this this roster is constantly changing because of those things. You know, they're like, OK, listen, we need to we need to bring in some some more defensive backs here because the ones yeah. that we got right now, they're either hurt or we got to get some competition for these guys. I mean, you look at the wide receiver position. I think you probably could pick pick your starting not starting guys, but your five or six guys that are going to be on the team. At least I probably could. But, I mean, there's always injuries. There's always guys that plays better and this and that. And, you know, the back end of your roster is all about special teams. So you got to find some guys to do that. So, um, But, this, you know, the team is constantly making moves to to get this team better. And well, it's funny. I'm sorry, Jeff. No, I didn't mean to fine. cut you I off. Done. I said it's funny you mentioned that because that's the perfect segue to what I was teasing earlier. Well, the Giants just added another defensive back to the roster today. <laughs> They yeah, added Michael Jaquette, who was on the Eagles mm-hmm. for parts of 2020 and 2021. He was on the active roster as well as the practice squad. Then he briefly went to Jacksonville and then joined the Giants, obviously, today. And to make room for him, they parted ways with defensive lineman Antonio Valentino, who they had just signed as an undrafted free agent out of Florida. More of a reason why you sometimes should not get caught up with these undrafted free agents because one day they're on the roster. Unfortunately, the next they're no longer here. But Jaquette is 6'2". He has no ties to Wink Martindale. He played 33% of the defensive snaps in 2020. But you could tell they're bringing in a little bit more experience in that department Mm -hmm. as they're trying to look for guys to round out the back end of this depth chart. Well, I mean, if you look at the way that this Wink Martindale defense plays, um, there is going to be a lot of pressure on those, those cornerbacks and safeties to cover. Because they, he, he's more front seven, where some like, you know, look, Patrick Graham was more back seven, okay? Really relied on that back end of the defense and his linebackers. Um, but Wink is, you know, these guys are all over the place. You're going to see times where, if you go back and look at some of the film from Baltimore, there are times when there's guys standing up all over the place. There isn't one guy that has their hand in the dirt, okay? The one time they got two guys, you know, and there's nobody even on the center of the guards. They're playing outside. Like, like if you're a quarterback, you're like, what, is, what the heck is this, you know? <laughs> but you, you don't know about the guy, that, you know, something coming up the middle or, or the blitzes off the end. So I feel like Wink's system puts a lot of onus on the quarterback because they wanted that where Patrick wanted to confuse and coverage and down the field and things like that. Wink is in your face. And when I'm in your face, you're going to make a mistake. And if you and if you throw the ball, I, my cover, my guys are going to be covering it. We're going to intercept it, or it's going to be incomplete. Or I want my front seven to get after your butt, and you're going to be in the dirt with a sack, force fumble, all that kind of aggressiveness. And I think the Giants fans are going to love to watch Wink calling plays for this defense. It's going to be a lot of fun. A lot let's, of fun. Let's head to the phone lines once again before we wrap up shop. We've got Bob in Myrtle Beach joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff. Hello, Bob. What's happening, Bob? Hi, hi guys. How are you? Good, right? Um, you, good. Um, you were talking about yards per catch, and um, I was a little confused when I was listening to that. So does yards per catch say a guy catches the ball 10 yards downfield and he runs for 10 more yards? Is, is it just where he catches it, or does it include the yak yards? No, it includes both. Because it's the total it reception. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that gets, okay. cal- that that's gets why calculated. You think, that's why you think it would reception. be a higher yeah. number, right? I mean, you would think that these would I, be really I, higher. I agree, Jeff. I, now that it includes everything, I'm surprised. I yeah. would have thought it would have been 30 yards or 35 yards or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. 
that was that was basically my question. I enjoy you guys. Uh, Thank you. you and you know what? You know when you look you know. at like Tyreek Hill when he was at eleven, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. the, think about where he gets the ball a lot of times. You know, there those those quick yeah. quick dump off passes where you know he might get he might get thirteen yards running, but he caught the ball three yards behind the line of scrimmage, which he only gets a ten ten yards positive so yards, right? Ten for that, yeah. right, right. Okay, very good. Thank you. Appreciate You're welcome. You got a bump. At least, I, th- at least I think that's how they do it. <laughs> no, know? well, it's a fair question. I mean, we didn't mean to necessarily confuse anybody earlier, but the bottom line is yards per reception. When I was throwing out those numbers and you and I were having a detailed mm-hmm. conversation, that's basically just the simple math is you take the total yards receiving for a wide receiver. So if he's got 1,200 receiving yards, you then divide that by the number of receptions he had. Let's say it's 50, and the answer you get is, is essentially the yardage per reception. So I think for some guys, and this all came from an earlier call when we were looking at the Giants receiving core and thinking, well, you're going to need somebody that's going to constantly get 20-yard receptions. And I Mm. said, well, don't get misled by that because Buffalo and Kansas City didn't have guys that were averaging 25 yards per reception. They found a variety of ways to get themselves open so you know that was more of a mathematical activity just to prove the point that there's not 25 wide receivers in the NFL getting 27 yards per reception even though sometimes it appears like that because you think every time you watch the highlights it's 60 yard catch 70 yard catch but the law of average clearly balances out and Robert Foster is the only guy on the roster that has the track record over the course of his career who actually has scratch the surface of about 20 yards per reception. But that doesn't mean that, A, he's a lock to make the roster, and, B, that he's going to have enough opportunities. Because just real quickly before we wrap up, he averages just over 20 yards per reception in his career. But that's come on 68 catches, which is, once again, a very small sample size. That's over three seasons, Jeff. There was one year he had 44 targets. I take that back. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the targets. That was on 32 receptions, even a smaller number in which he's averaged 20 yards per catch. So, for example, his highest total for catches in one season was 27 in 2018, actually in Buffalo with Brian Dable. But then 2019, he only had three catches. And then last year with Washington, he only had two. So that's a little bit misleading because the bulk of his average is a product of one season, essentially. Right, right. And interesting, it was with Brian Dable. Correct. Well, that's why I brought him up, because Mm -hmm. he's sort of an afterthought. But here's another guy that has a connection to the coaching staff and could be a little different than some of the other wide receivers in the mix. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, I'm just excited about watching, you know, and again, none of this is going to this is all going to iron itself out. They got a long ways to go um, with competition this summer training camp, you know, building this roster, because right now. The only thing you can really take away from these OTAs and mini camps and things like this is things that I've told you before. It's an evaluation process. They're they're not they're not physically going up against guys like they would in a game. They're just going through plays and doing technique and fundamental kind of stuff. And by the way, the mental parts of it, that's a big thing. People just don't understand. I know I know how big of an idea this is that when guys come from the classroom to the field that I say it over and over I say probably say it too much but I have to put so much emphasis on that because there's a transition there that players get lost in that transition and that makes up that's a big deal in the National Football League being able to be taught something in the classroom apply it on the field and then be okay with it because there's so many guys that just can't do that 
They're so talented, but the coach is not going to be on. You're not going to be on the field if I can't trust you're going to be in the right place. I'm not going to do it. And that's what this is all about right now. Because remember, the OTAs isn't just getting out of your car, going, getting dressed, and going on the field. There, there, you know, you have meetings, and then you're on the field, and then there's meetings afterwards, and you get out of there. So it's all important. Yeah, that classroom work. And it's also important for coaches to understand that you don't want to overwhelm guys so much too early in the process because then they're going to be going in 75 different directions and you're going to have them lost and you're going to have to play catch-up all the way through training camp. So that's another element in play with respect to the process during OTAs. All right, that is going to wrap up. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Well, no, real quickly, I was just looking at some of the transcripts from uh, Brian Dable when he was speaking in the media today. One of the things he said, he says, this train's not slowing down. We're just picking up. So that just goes back with what you said. Yeah, well, meaning you can't jump off the train. You either stay on or (laughs) you're in trouble, okay? Well, the train's leaving you behind Mm -hmm. to build that parallel. And and really, and real quickly, all – this off-season program with the OTAs and the mini camps and all that kind of stuff. Remember, this is all about installation. They install the base defense, base offense, and base special teams um, because they don't want to do too much. Because the guys, there's a lot of guys that may not be here. Um, once they get into training camp, they start over again. But it's an accelerated process. So what you might learn in the off-season in OTAs in maybe two or three days. You're going to learn it in the first half of a practice or a meeting the first day of training camp. And it just goes quickly. And so that's my point is that you got to pay attention now and get an understanding of the offense or the defense or the special teams, whatever you're at. Because once you get to training camp, they're not waiting for you. And that's where I'm saying the transition between when you come out of meetings in training camp and go out to practice, where the biggest evaluation is going on. That's when guys are getting cut left and right, back and forth. That's where you make the team. If you're not doing that, then you're going to be gone, and they're not waiting for you. So. Yeah, no, 100%, because you need the concepts and the foundation embedded in you now so that when you get to calculus as opposed mm-hmm. to geometry later on, exactly. you're not lost and you don't have you know, yeah. all the fundamentals you to You better work understand yeah. some of those formulas before you move on. That's Bingo. for sure. Indeed. <laughs> all right, that is going to wrap up Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live which is part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. We will be back up and running again tomorrow at noon Eastern, continuing the conversation and discussing some major takeaways from OTAs. For Jeff Fiegels, I'm Lance Meadows. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we will speak to you on Friday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.